Welcome to the Lion's Den University Report. This program brings you a behind-the-scenes look at the spiritual life on today's university and college campuses. Now here's your host, Glenn Bailey. The following program was previously broadcast. We're here today in Bloomington, Indiana. And uh, when I started uh, my undergraduate degree at Berkeley back in the dark ages in uh, 1969, I was going into nuclear physics, and uh, the uh, math knocked me off. But I, I uh, get to meet physicists from time to time, and uh, today is one of those times. Uh, my guest for this broadcast is John Beggs, a professor in the physics department here at Indiana University in Bloomington. And John, uh, thanks for joining us for the program today. Uh, thanks for having me. And. Uh, you're here on campus as a professor in physics. Uh, tell us a little bit about the background of how you ended up here and uh, uh, what your uh, studies were before uh, becoming a professor. Sure. Uh, so my background is actually in biophysics. And strangely, what we look at is the physics of groups of neurons, so how they kind of interact. Right. And we're trying to adapt uh, equations from physics to describe how they work. And one of the things that we found a while ago was that if you take the equations that describe avalanches, let's say in granular material like sand or snow or something like that, those equations can pretty well describe how activity cascades in neurons, so we mm -hmm. call those neuronal avalanches. So that's an example of the type of thing. It blends physics and biology together. Right, right. And by the way, I ended up in philosophy. So ah, <laughs> that's good. To, I love philosophy, yeah, too. Helps to be in the ministry with that, that background. Sure. But, uh, okay, so uh, you're, now where did you do your studies uh, prior to becoming a professor? So I studied engineering physics at Cornell. And uh, I stayed there for another year and got a master's in engineering physics. Then I went to the Peace Corps, and I was in uh, Western Samoa. At that time, it was called Western Samoa, and I taught high school. And I just loved teaching high school. And it was fun to interact with the students and uh, really get to know them. I lived in a family there. So I was there for two years. And when I came back, I thought, well, I'd, I'd love to become a professor if I could. Yeah. So uh, I... So that wasn't up, originally your intent, though? Not at the beginning, no. Uh -huh. No, okay. it wasn't. I loved physics. I thought it was beautiful and everything, and, mm -hmm. and I just didn't quite know what to do. I, I was trained as an engineer, but I think my bent was more toward figuring out how things work rather than building things. Right. And so when I came back, I decided to study the brain, and uh, basically I, I trained uh, using things called patch clamps to study the biophysical properties of neurons. So we'd go in and get their voltages and their currents and uh, how synapses work and things like that. So I did that at Yale. Uh, I was there for uh, eight years, uh, getting a PhD. <laughs> Yale's a good place, but eight years is a long time to right, be there. Sure. Yeah, and I got married in, the, in that time, and my mm -hmm. wife's like, ah, well, when are you going to finish up, John? Yeah. <laughs> so that's the background. Yeah, yeah. excellent. And now you're a follower of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, yes. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, how you came to that faith. Yeah, so I think it really first started dawning on me in high school when there was a friend of mine in high school who had a little Bible study group, and I, I followed uh, that and got to read the Bible. And then I went to college, and uh, I did not hold to things. Uh, you know, I'd come home, and I, I had this thing where I'd read a chapter every night, even if I was drunk, even if I was barfing out of my bed. Mm. So I was not doing the right thing. Uh, and God's pretty merciful and patient and kind. And... Uh, it later came to me that I should be looking at this a little bit more, and I read it a little bit more and studied a little bit more, and I got more excited about it. And then I started following, I would say. Uh, and it's been, you know, ever since, just learning and growing and learning more. And right. uh, 
yeah, that's uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> okay. So, so you believe, though, that Jesus Christ uh, uh, lived on the earth and he died for your sins? Absolutely. To pay the penalty for your oh, sins? Definitely. And then bodily rose from the dead? And, yes, and I do. And he's coming back someday. I do. I yeah. do agree with that. And, and that's one of the things that I've really loved finding out about is, you know, so if I read historical evidence mm-hmm. and look at things like uh, uh, Pliny the Younger, uh, Suetonius, uh, Tacitus, and some of these people who weren't Christians by any stretch of the imagination, as you know, right? They wrote about things that that undeniably attest to Jesus being a real person who existed. Um, I think even one of the statements, I I can't remember who this was, basically he says, I think it's Tacitus, he says there was uh, a group of followers that were really just hated by everybody, and uh, the leader of this group was named Christus. And uh, he was given the extreme penalty under Pontius Pilate um, under the reign of Tiberius. And uh, so for a short time, that superstition, that pernicious superstition seemed to have stopped only to break out again uh, in Jerusalem, but then also in Rome. So if you look at that statement, it gives me great comfort. So first of all, here's someone who hated Christians, who talks about Jesus existing. Mm -hmm. It matches up with the biblical account of him being killed under Pontius Pilate, given the extreme penalty, crucified. But then after it stopped, after they put him to death, he says, it broke out again. Mm -hmm. It was even stronger after the guy got killed. And that was completely different with all these other Palestinian upstarts who are constantly revolting against the Romans. They'd go out, they'd get a bunch of followers, they'd be killed, and then end of movement. Yep. This thing actually gets stronger after that. And, you know, we could go on at length about – I'm not a history professor, but, right. but I really enjoy that. And, yeah. yeah. And the other thing that really convinces me is the internal consistency of the Bible. So when you look at things like uh, – and I'll say, for example, uh, Abraham taking his son Isaac up to the top of the mountain. And you know this well because mm-hmm. you're uh, – you know, Genesis 22, and right. he's ready to kill him. And everyone goes, man, why did God do that? What a nasty God. Yeah. Well, all the other gods in the the period at that time were demanding human sacrifice, right? And what does God do? He gets him all the way up there. He's ready to kill him. And he goes, stop. I'm not like the other gods. Don't kill him. I will provide the sacrifice. He finds a ram caught in the thicket and he kills Mm -hmm. that. And that very mountain, right, Mount Moriah, was where the temple was later built. And very near there is where Jesus, God's own son, was actually killed. That's just incredible art in how the Bible holds together and right. it's true right sure. I mean it, it it makes other literature like Moby Dick or the Brothers Karamazov look like a comic book right, right? in terms of the mm-hmm. depth that you find in the Bible yeah and I mean historically uh, a couple of things I visited Israel in uh, 1999 with a group of ministers and what an amazing uh, experience that was but mm. two things that relate to what you were saying uh, Mount Moriah is where that stone was where Abraham was to kill uh, sacrifice mm. Isaac, uh, the temple that was over that was destroyed. So now the, the uh, Dome of the Rock, the Muslim mosque, is over that stone. And in order to go to the stone, you've got to go in the mosque. And we were there. Oh, and, wow. Uh, it's the most uh, visible figure uh, or feature of Jerusalem is that gold dome. And that's right. the Muslim mosque right there in Jerusalem. And of course, you know, the front pages of the newspaper are filled with what related to what the Bible was talking about three to 4,000 years ago about Abraham and his descendants, mm. Isaac and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Yes. And then in terms of Jesus and the resurrection, one of the uh, questions that skeptics brought up was that there was no Pontius Pilate. They hadn't found for hundreds of years any evidence that there was a, a historical figure, Pontius Pilate. Right. Well, we went to this uh, amphitheater on the Mediterranean Sea there in Israel, and they had excavated it, and it was built by King Herod. And 
the uh, as they excavated it, it was filled with sand, and they had to pull out all the sand. And they found a, a section of where dignitaries had been seated, and mm. their names were carved into their seats. Mm. And there was Pontius Pilate, <laughs> and this was in the 1900s, in the 20th century, that this was discovered, and it erased that you know skeptical uh, claim that there was no evidence for a Pontius Pilate. Right. And uh, so the Bible has proved itself true. And then uh, I don't know if you've come across the uh, book by Frank Morrison that was written uh, in the 20th century also no, I haven't. Uh, called Who Moved the Stone? And ah, he was okay. a skeptic who wanted to disprove the resurrection and in the process of examining the evidences like you were sharing, uh, he became a devout follower of Christ and then wrote the book Who Moved the Stone? Chapter 1, the book that refused to be written. Oh, <laughs> okay, wow. So. He didn't think he was going to write. Right, yeah. exactly. So, so, you know, for a skeptic who might be listening to us and saying, you know, these guys are nutcases you know, examine the evidence. Yes, you know, I, I completely think that's it. Right. <laughs> we don't say throw away your brains and believe it anyway. No, but that's often the, I think, supposition that many people have is that if you're uh, a Bible-believing Christian, you must be uh, somehow irrational or not carefully thinking things through. And I don't know. I look at people like Francis Collins. I look at people like uh, Timothy Keller. I look at people like C.S. Lewis, and it you can't help but think that these people are very deliberate, very thoughtful, and they've done their research. Right. And uh, that gives me great comfort when I read that, and I see that it does hang together. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think the problem is most people haven't actually examined it critically, and they should. And e- even people who are within churches, sometimes churches, not all churches, but some churches say, no, we don't want you to question anything. Right. And Just if a church is it. doing that, it actually hurts a person from growing in their faith. Because yeah. when they begin to investigate these things, they see, aha, there is evidence for it. And a lot of young people come to a university, and they haven't been told the reasons for their faith and their faith faith is undermined when they, they come to the campus. Yes. Uh, fortunately, occasionally, anyway, uh, last night, I don't know if you were aware, uh, Dr. R- Robbie Zacharias yes. was uh, here on campus and talk about an intellectual uh, mind. Uh, his is profound. He's excellent. Did you get As to hear example, him? Or? I didn't. I had to be at home, but I, uh, I have watched him many times on YouTube right. and read his books as well. I love sure. him. Yes. Great. He's a perfect example of, of a deep, thoughtful, well-researched response to these things. And I, I, I think... Maybe if I can kind of tee off that. One of the things that's going on right now is the the current intellectual climate, let's say, at a university has a number of assumptions that more or less go unchallenged. For example, uh, what's right for you is is just what's right for you, and I have no business questioning you on that. Right. right. And if I question you on it, uh, then I've created a great moral harm by engaging with you in dialogue about what values you think are important. And I think that the university ought to be a place where these types of dialogues are always going on. I'd like to see them far more often. Right. Uh, and, and I and wish you, that would happen. And our view is if you care about somebody and you think you have an answer that they would be helpful to them, of course you share it, even though they may not uh, receive it. You don't, you know, you can't force anybody to become a Christian. No, no. But they ought to know what the option is. And, sure. And in many of these places today, it's, it's suppressed. Right. And so... Uh, the climate, uh, you'd like to see more of a climate of discourse where people can interact with these different ideas because they are important of why we're here and what our values are and is there a uh, source of truth that we can uh, find that will go above just you know personal opinion or the fads of the day. Yes, absolutely, definitely. I think that's extremely important to have those kinds of dialogues. Um, I know a few years ago we had uh, some friends over, uh, professors in their 
their uh, spouses. And uh, one of the guys was talking with me, and he didn't know who I was really, and he was asking questions. He said, oh, I think it's really good. We should mock the church and this and that. And I, I agreed with him, actually. I said, no, that's fine, because it can help the church to grow stronger and things. So he kind of took me to be an atheist, and mm, he okay. kind of <laughs> took the ball and ran with it, and we kept going. And then I asked him a question a little bit later on, well, what do you believe is right and wrong? And he's like, well, well I actually don't believe in right and wrong. I said, so you don't think murder's wrong? He's no, I actually don't believe it's wrong. I said, well, then why are you morally mm. indignant about churches and what they do? And I said that, and my wife looked at me like, John, this is a social event. Let's yeah, not, you know, right. let's not get into this. But, Your you know, yeah, <laughs> she, she was the, the, the better voice of reason. But I, I do think those kinds of questions should be asked, and only if people want to engage in that, right? I mean, right. you don't ram it down their throat, but if they want to talk yeah. about it, it's nothing's more valuable. Right, right. And the uh, the most satisfying answers, at least uh, that we've discovered, uh, are the answers given to us in the Bible and in the person of Jesus Christ. And yes. That are in all of history. And that's why, you know, the Christian church is still alive in the 21st century. And, yes. And people are still coming to faith in him. And perhaps even the listener today uh, might be wrestling with that question. And we encourage you to keep looking into it and, and ask Jesus. And he's never turned anyone away. He forgives sins and he offers something no one else can offer the gift of eternal